Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian, Dr. Sajin Bakta. Hello. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be doing a special episode, Questions from the Field. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. We did one of these about a year ago and they were really fun. And so we kind of asked our EMS crews, you know, what are some things that have been bothering you? What are some questions? We're just going to go through some Q&A. So Patil, why don't you kick us off on the first question? So our first question comes to us from one of our medics. Um, So the question is this. In the cardiac arrest trauma protocol, it says that bilateral needle thoracostomy is indicated if pulseless and non-breathing and trauma to the head, neck, torso. Does this include mechanisms where pneumothorax isn't a main concern, such as gunshot wound to the head, isolated penetrating trauma to the lower torso? I once heard it said that no one should die from trauma in the Fresno area without bilateral needle decompressions. Is this really the case? Great question. We're going to have Sajin um, answer it first. Awesome question. In our protocols, any trauma to the head, neck, or torso in a traumatic arrest needs bilateral needle decompression. And there are a few reasons for this. First, in a traumatic arrest, relieving attention pneumothorax is a key life-saving procedure EMS crew can do on scene. And this is one of those procedures that is so quick and so easy and then could literally save a life. And second, seemingly unrelated trauma can cause a pneumothorax. For example, bullets can bounce around and travel to very different places in the body. Cases in our system specifically that shaped this policy were a gunshot to the buttock region that caused a traumatic arrest due to the bullet traveling up to the chest. And another case involved a pedestrian versus auto accident with no apparent injuries, but was found in cardiac arrest. And we feel strongly that any trauma to the head, neck, or torso that causes a person to die should get bilateral needle decompression on the chance that the tension pneumothorax can be relieved. Please refer back to our episode trauma codes. That was episode nine. And we detail a lot of the stressful situations, but a lot of the easy things that you can do to help save a life. And in that trauma code episode, we go through specifically the protocol for traumatic cardiac arrest. Remember, the person is already dead. You can't hurt them. You can only help them. Remember, the primary site for doing this procedure is the mid-axillary line, so in line with the middle of the armpit, at the fifth intercostal space, which is just below the nipple line. The biggest thing is to transport. The only thing prior to transport is direct pressure or tourniquet on major bleeding, and doing the bilateral needle thoracostomy. Um, let's jump to another question. So we got a question from one of our paramedics. IO versus IV. How good is an IO? Pantio, why don't you kick us off with that answer? 
This is a great question and has been a matter of a lot of research. Um, just to put it in perspective, in our Central California EMS agency in 2021, there were about 50,000 IVs and IOs placed. So vascular access is happening all the time. Now, some of the best literature when it comes to this question uh, comes out of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest studies. So uh, one study published in March 2021 in the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma, Resuscitation, and Emergency Medicine looked at intraosseous versus intravenous vascular access during CPR for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis of observational studies. They looked at nine retrospective observational studies involving 111,746 adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. And they concluded no significant association between types of vascular access and neurological outcomes at hospital discharge among these patients. So that was a, a good little tidbit there of no, neuro no significant association between IO and IV versus neurological outcomes. Now, in another recent retrospective study of 1,800 patients suffering non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in King County, Washington, found those treated with an IO instead of an IV were less likely to achieve ROSC or to survive long enough to be admitted to the hospital. So this study, they were kind of concluding IV is better. And there are a few studies like this out there that come to this conclusion that IV access is better than IO and that it might need, lead to more ROSC. However, um, I think that all of these studies were kind of done in, in already like a pretty, obviously very sick group of patients. There could be a pretty major time to treatment difference between the groups. And so in many systems, IO placement is a backup venous access when IV attempts aren't possible or have failed. So what this means is that in these cases, people are, you know, trying and trying to get IV access they're not getting that IV access, then finally they place an IO. And so then they can give the resuscitation medications. But what's happening is that it takes longer to administer resuscitation medications in the IO groups. So I think these are actually like pretty biased studies and not in a bad way, but it's like they're retrospective observational studies. That's just how it goes. Um, this is definitely the case in our local SEMSA protocols putting in an IO isn't necessarily going to be the number one type of access that you go for. Now, another thing um, is to consider the anatomy. A study in 2014 published in Military Medicine looked at animal models for IO use in cardiac arrest. And they found an increased and faster appearing serum concentration of epinephrine with IV administration compared to IO. So this kind of makes sense because absorption of intraosseous epinephrine is determined by blood flow through the medullary cavity of the bone. So that blood flow in the bone marrow basically is decreased when you're in hemorrhagic shock by about 30%. And this decrease may be even greater for patients in cardiac arrest. So of course, when you're in cardiac arrest, when you're already kind of dead, you're not getting a lot of blood flow in that bone marrow. And so, of course, you're probably not going to be absorbing the epinephrine as thoroughly and as quickly. There is also 
to consider the pressure gradient between the inferior vena cava, or IVC, and the right atrium. Now, this pressure gradient is virtually non-existent during CPR, which really limits blood return to the heart from below the diaphragm. Thus, there may be significant delays in resuscitation medications reaching the heart when introduced into the circulation from an IO access site in the lower extremities, right? It's logical. You put in the IO in their leg, for example, it's going to take way longer for it to get up into the heart. So all the data for IV versus IO is really in this population of cardiac arrest, i.e. dead patients. So what about live patients? In live patients, we know that IO absorption is immediate and equal to the IV route. And so IOs are used routinely in emergency departments, and we really think of them to be equivalent in terms of absorption and time to get, you know, peak blood concentrations of medications. Now, a study published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2014 looked at the onset of IV versus IO rocuronium, and that's the paralytic used in intubation, with a pig model. Now, in this study, they found no statistical difference from the time of administration to complete neuromuscular blockade between the IO and IV routes. So again, in this live animal model, they were equal. Now, let's review the protocol for vascular access in our Central California EMS agency, our local four-county EMS system. When it talks about the intraosseous or IO access route, they comment that this is uh, for fluid and medication administration if unable to establish an IV and access is essential for patient care. So this is especially key in critically ill pediatric patients. So in these kids, um, if one initial IV attempt is unsuccessful or if no vein is immediately apparent, go straight to IO access without further IV attempts. Um, if the patient is awake and alert, contact the base hospital prior to inserting the IO. But this is going to be really key in resuscitating an ill pediatric patient. Now, in adult cardiac arrest patients, if unable to establish an IV after three attempts, initiate the IO access. If there is an ET tube, administer medications via the endotracheal route if IV or IO access cannot be obtained. And then other patients may have IO access started only by base hospital uh, order. Now, um, pretty much all pre-hospital medications administered via the IV route may be administered through IO access, and those will be in their individual protocols. Now, of course, um, don't use that extremity if there's a fracture present. Don't go through an area with burn or cellulitis or skin infection. And the site preference for an IO is going to be a little bit different depending on if it's a pediatric patient or an adult patient. I will preface this by saying that different systems have different locations where they do IOs. Uh, some of them go for sternal IOs. We don't really have that in our protocol. Uh, let me describe the locations that are in our protocol. In pediatric patients, the first choice is going to be the flat medial surface of the anterior tibia. You go one to two centimeters below the tibial tuberosity. The second choice is going to be the distal anterior femur in the midline, three centimeters or three fingers above the patella. In adults, now, actually, we focus more 
um, on the medial malleolus or the ankle, so two to three centimeters proximal to the medial malleolus, directed slightly up, and also the humeral head. You know, locations differ according to different EMS agencies and different ambulance companies. Also, the actual procedure will differ a little bit in that um, in your system, if you use an IO gun versus if you have a handheld IO um, that you um, you physically, you know, press into the bone. In our American ambulance system here, um, we have the manual IO needles um, and the critical care transport team does have the IO guns, which just speed things up a little bit. So in summary, um, I would say, especially for pediatric patients, remember that if you can't get an IV, you're really going to go for IO pretty quickly. In adults, um, it's going to be if you have three unsuccessful IV attempts in a cardiac arrest patient or by um, base hospital contact. But at the end of the day, what I take away from this is that IOs are very useful and in living patients especially, they work really well. They work just as well as an IV. So I think that we should be, you know, doing them when we need to. And even when looking at the pre-hospital cardiac arrest data, I think a lot of it is skewed because I think the IO patients were getting their access later in their care than the ones who just immediately got IV access. Um, So I do feel like there is some bias in those studies. Even in the hospital, even in the perfect IV placement conditions when our nurses are having difficulty, um, you know, they get one or two attempts in a critically ill patient and we put in an IO and that's okay. And as Patil was saying, especially in these kids where IV access is just really difficult in the best of times, if they're dehydrated, if they're altered, it becomes really difficult. And so just moving directly to that IO to just get them stabilized is always the right decision. And I like to comment on the cardiac arrest patients. So survival from a cardiac arrest is very small at baseline. So just remember in these studies, they're looking at ROSC, like return of spontaneous circulation in these patients. And um, like Patil mentioned, it's hard to get IV access on them. So if you cannot get it, you go to IO. The most important thing is continuous CPR and getting the epi on board. And so I feel like it's really important to make sure you prioritize. If you need to get an IO, just get that IO because that's going to make a difference in these patients. Well, great. Let's, let's jump to another question. Well, Danielle, why don't you help us with this one? At an outside clinic or facility, if the patient does not meet our C-spine criteria, would you remove the collar or leave it on? What would you do? You know, that's a great question. Um, so in SEMSA, the Central California EMS Agency, we use a selective spinal immobilization protocol. Actually, we go through this extensively in episode number 66, C-spine immobilization. So to take a look at that for the full discussion. But for reference, let's just refresh everyone's memory, right? If you are an ambulatory patient and you have no neck pain or tenderness, they're going to be sitting in a position of comfort. If they're an ambulatory patient and they have neck pain or tenderness, it's still going to be a gurney position of comfort with or without the support. But if they have any neurological symptoms, they're going to get full C-spine immobilization. If they're non-ambulatory and no neck pain, position of comfort, non-ambulatory, and does have neck pain, they're going to gurney supine position of comfort with extrication support. But if they have any neurological symptoms, they're going to get full C-spine support. If they're altered and non-ambulatory, they're going to get full C-spine support. 
So it's kind of selective immobilization. And as you can hear when you look at our other podcasts about C-spine immobilization, it's really important that we don't want to put too many people in C-collars or I would say spinal immobilization that you don't need. In our system, we actually do not have cervical collars themselves. It's blocks and tape to a backboard that immobilizes the cervical spine. So with all that for reference, to get back to the original question, Sajin, sorry about that. If a physician or any other medical provider placed that patient in a cervical collar before EMS arrived, I would ask myself as an EMS professional, what do they know that I don't know? You know, what do they suspect that I'm not suspecting? Because something in that patient's history or exam must have made that outside medical professional concern for a cervical spine injury. So my advice is leave it on. No one is going to get upset if you're more conservative. However, if that patient has a cervical spine injury and you took the patient out of the collar and did not keep them in cervical spine immobilization, you could actually risk great injury to that patient. So as always, if you're concerned or have a question, call the base hospital, right? So you show up on scene, a clinic or an outside facility has put the patient in a cervical collar and you're not sure because it doesn't meet criteria in our um, criteria, I say call the base. I guarantee you 99% of the base hospital docs and everyone to say 100% are going to say trust that sending physician and trust their concerns and keep them in a C-collar. Um, there is a little note in our protocol, and I think that's what this question came up, is um, it says the paramedic should consider removing C-spine immobilization on any patient who does not meet the above criteria and is placed in C-spine immobilization prior to the paramedic's arrival, i.e. first responders. I think this is talking about in the protocol, like if you come upon a scene and fires put a bunch of people in C-spine, then you've now had time to assess them, you've had time to talk to them. If you feel like you can take them out, you can. But I feel like it's different when a physician or a higher level medical professional already has them in a collar, is already concerned about them. I'd be very cautious to not take them out of that. I just want to add something. I also think that there is something to be said about just being professional to all the other healthcare professionals on a scene. And I don't want to be blunt, but if somebody else was concerned enough about to do this, just when you're in front of them, respect them and leave that on. It's not hurting the patient necessarily. And if you just, I feel like do that in front of another healthcare professionals, you're only breeding ill will and discontent. So there's also something to be said about playing well in the sandbox together. And I especially think that if you show up on a scene and a physician has put them in a collar and you say, this is not our protocol, I'm ripping off this collar. Now you're creating a fight between a um, EMS professional and the other medical professional. And I just feel like let's save our fights. Our transport times are very short in our Fresno County system. You have them into the hospital within 10 minutes usually. Um, and then let's get more information and leave that collar on. So those are some great questions from the field. I really appreciate all the questions that got sent in to us. Let's go through the summary take-home points. Patiel. So I'll just um, stick to the question I answered, which is that IO access is just as good as IV access, especially in live patients. And think of them, especially with your pediatric resuscitations. Sajin. So we're glad the word is getting around that no patient in Fresno should die from a traumatic arrest without bilateral needle thoracostomy. And my summary take home point is keep on the collar if someone else has put it on. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for the questions. Please continue to send them in. 
If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com once again that's podcast at americanambulance.com thanks thank you for joining us on the american ambulance ems podcast produced by american ambulance in fresno california the views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of american ambulance or ucsf fresno the theme song for the show is written and performed by roshan roach the beats were created by young pear and brett schoenwald And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.